In the scriptures, God not only offers us joy in the midst of our suffering, God actually commands joy in every situation. Broken shoulders and all. Throughout the Bible, he commands us to rejoice. There are literally hundreds of verses in which God is calling us to rejoice. Let me just read you a few from beginning to end. Deuteronomy 12 says, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and your sons and your daughters. Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isaiah 65, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I created Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. Joel 2, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And finally, Revelations 19, the end of time. It says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. God's chief goal in our life is that we would rejoice and that we would have a joy that isn't phased by suffering. Throughout the entire biblical narrative, God calls us to rejoice. And now this might seem like a cruel trick for somebody in Mark's situation. This might seem like a cruel trick in your situation You may think, how could I possibly rejoice in the midst of all of this suffering? Nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody understands what I have gone through. Nobody understands that I have to deal with X, Y, and Z. If they understood this, no way would God possibly command me to rejoice. And yet we know the Lord does not command us to do anything that is impossible with him. And so he commands us for joy. And the question is, how do we get this joy? How do we cultivate this joy once we have it? So what we're going to look at today, if you would, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 12. It's page 1014 in the Red Bible and page 1315 in the Children's Bible. If you missed last week, uh, we talked about the beginning of 1 Peter, that it's written by the Apostle Peter, who was one of the great leaders in the early church. He was authorized by Jesus Christ himself to go and shepherd the sheep of God. Peter starts off with praising our Trinitarian God for his work of salvation. And then this week, he, tra- he transitions into praising God for the joy that he has given to believers, a joy that is higher then our suffering is low. And so we get to read of that joy today. So let's read together. First Peter chapter one, we'll read verses six through 12. Verse six. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning as a wounded bunch, suffering from all various sorts of afflictions, suffering from physical ailments, pain, chronic pain that doesn't go away, suffering from relational brokenness, people that we love and care about who are against us. Lord, we come today suffering the loss of loved ones who have passed on. Lord, we pray that in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this pain, you would give us a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, First Peter is written to Christians in Asia Minor who are going through suffering. They're suffering from persecution. They're suffering from prejudice. They're suffering from intolerance. They're suffering simply because they live in a fallen and decaying world. And yet in today's passage, Peter praises God for their joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Paul praises God for their inward joy that is unaffected by their outward circumstances. A joy that is unshaken by suffering. Unshaken by sightlessness, which we'll talk about what that means, but a joy that is constant and is everlasting. And again, the question is, how do we get that joy? How do we have that joy that can't be undermined, that can't be touched, that can't be shaken? Well, let's look together in First Peter here and we'll see first off joy in the midst of suffering. Last week, I gave you the assignment to think about where in your life do you suffer? And I gave that assignment again, not that you would become bitter and angry and dwell on that, but so that we might apply the good news that we read in Peter to that suffering, that we might apply the gospel to that suffering. And so Peter addresses suffering here in verses 6 through 7. In verse 6, he starts by saying, in this you rejoice. Let's pause there. What is the this that Peter is talking about? What are they rejoicing in? Well, Peter is referring to what we studied last week in verses 1 through 5. They're rejoicing in the Trinitarian salvation that they are recipients of. 
that they have been chosen by God the Father for salvation, that they've been cleansed by the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ, and that they're being sanctified by God the Holy Spirit for obedience unto Christ. That's what they're rejoicing in. But it continues, And this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, the little while, by the way, is their lifetime. (laughs) Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What is an appropriate response for a Christian in the midst of suffering? How should we respond when suffering comes our way? Well, here we see that the appropriate response to suffering is grieving. You see, Christians do not rejoice In their suffering, they rejoice in the midst of their suffering. And yet we grieve over the trials in our life. We grieve over the brokenness of this world. In some ways, Christians are the happiest people and the saddest people. We're the happiest people because we can have joy in the midst of suffering. But we are the saddest people because we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so simultaneously... Christians in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, are to be both joyful and grieving. These are two things that seem like they're diametrically opposed to one another. But because of Christ, they can coexist in the heart of a believer. Now, how is that possible? To go through the worst, most painful, most grieving times in life and still have joy. Well, if we take the context, we see it's because we know that God is at work. The Trinitarian God is working out our salvation, maturing us in Christ, growing us and forming us into the image of Jesus. And so I want to look at this verse 7 and kind of look and see how does God use our suffering for good that we can joy in what he's doing. Verse 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are four things I want to quickly point out here as to how God uses suffering in our life. The first is that God uses our suffering to prove the genuineness of our faith. The phrase used here that's translated tested genuineness in the Greek is one word, and it's used to describe something that is proved by testing. Trials prove where your faith lies. And it's not proving to God where your faith lies. It's proving to yourself where your faith lies. Trials don't prove the genuineness of our faith to God because he already knows, but trials prove the genuineness of our faith in God to ourselves. Let me give you this example. For the first 35 years of my life, I'm 37, I think. For the first 35 years of my life, once you get past 30, it just doesn't matter anymore. You know what I mean? So the first 35 years of my life, I didn't struggle with depression at all. I mean, it just wasn't something I struggled with. And I remember thinking, what's it like to be depressed? You know, do do Christians who are depressed, do they feel really far away from God? Do they hate God? Are Are they angry with God? What's it like? Well, over the past two years, mostly because growing older and 
the longness of winter and different things weighing on me. I struggle with depressions at different times, specifically March, because it's still cold. And as I sit in bed and don't want to get out of bed, I feel close to God. My faith has been proven to me. You know, I, I've always wondered if I, if I went through that suffering that someone else did, would I have the faith to get through it? But the good news is that God gives us that faith. You don't have to wonder, will I have that faith? You have to trust in the God that will give you the faith in the midst of that trial. And so in the midst of trials, one of the beautiful things God does in the midst of those trials is he shows you the glory of your faith in him. He proves the foundation of your faith in the midst of suffering. Secondly, we see God uses our suffering to prove the preciousness of our faith. Peter says here that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. When we are suffering, when we are on our deathbed, when we are grasping for our last breath, gold doesn't matter. Nice cars do not matter. Big houses do not matter. The thing that matters in that time is that which is most precious. It is our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, suffering does a masterful job of clarifying our priorities, doesn't it? It shows us what is important in life and what rises to the top every time in the midst of suffering is that the chief preciousness of our life is Jesus Christ. It's God and it's our faith in him. Corey Tenboon, who suffered tremendously at the hands of the Nazis, who went to concentration camps and lost his, her sister in the concentration camp, put it this way. She said, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You know, in the midst of suffering, you are struck with this great reality that Jesus is all you need, that nothing else can provide you comfort in the midst of your suffering, that he is dependable, that he is faithful. And so suffering God uses to show us the preciousness of our faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, God uses our suffering to improve the purity of our life. Again, Peter says here that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. Fire does not destroy gold. Fire restores. Fire, uh, fire purifies gold. Fire burns off the impurities that are in gold. It refines gold. Our faith, like gold, is filled with impurities, filled with doubt, filled with idolatry, filled with sin. And through the midst of suffering, God is burning off the impurities of our faith and teaching us to trust and to hope and to rejoice in him alone. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a famous preacher, had on his bedroom a plaque with the verses from Isaiah 48.10. And Isaiah 48.10 says this, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. He goes on to say that it is no mean thing to be chosen of God because God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. 
I love that thought that God uses the afflictions of our life, the suffering of our life to make chosen men choice men. Many of you here can testify of suffering that you have gone through, suffering that you would never wish to go through again, suffering that you would never wish on your worst enemy. And yet at the same time, you can point to it and you can say, I wouldn't trade it for the world because it has made me who I am today. It has strengthened my face. It has shaped my character. It has broken off the rough edges. It has refined me. It has burned off impurities in my faith. And so we see God uses suffering to refine our faith and purify our faith. Finally, God uses our suffering to improve the glory of our faith. At the end of verse 7, it says that our tested faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is consistent with the Isaiah 48 passage that Spurgeon had on his wall as it goes on. I'll just read the whole thing for you. It says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver as I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And then he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it for you should for how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. When we take the worst trials of this life, the greatest suffering of this life, the things in which Satan tries to use to drive us away from God, to extinguish the flames of our faith. And instead, it fans the flames and grows our faith and grows our love and cherishing of God. When it's proven that trials lead us closer and into more intimacy with the one who made us. It brings glory to him to show that joy in God is greater than the lows of suffering. Instead of these trials extinguishing our faith, they fan our faith into flames, proving the genuineness of our faith, proving the preciousness of our faith, and improving the purity of our faith. You see, Christians are not exempt from trials. But we are promised that our trials have a purpose. That in the end, God will do something with those trials. And in the end, he will reveal from it the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether you are here today and you are a Christian or not a Christian, the reality is that you will suffer. That you probably are suffering. But the good news is for all who trust In Jesus Christ, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, we not only grieve, but we can also have great joy because we know that our Trinitarian God is at work in our life, that our suffering is not in vain, that it is precious in the hands of our loving Redeemer to conform us into the image of Christ and to rejoice in our Trinitarian God. And so we can have joy in the midst of suffering. Secondly, Peter points out here that we can have joy in the midst of sightlessness. Again, Peter is writing to the saints in Asia Minor. And he says this in verse 8. He goes, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. 
You know, it's, it's interesting that Peter wrote this because Peter saw Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter talked with Jesus. Peter touched Jesus. Peter got to see Jesus do miraculous things. But the saints in Asia Minor, like us, have only heard of Jesus, read of Jesus. And yet, they love Jesus. You know, maybe you're here today and you're considering Christianity and you have thought to yourself, if only I could see Jesus. If only I could have been there to see him do these miracles, then I would believe. Then I would follow him. Then I would love him. But we're reminded here that seeing Jesus is not a pre-qualification for trusting in Jesus or loving Jesus. You know, as I was thinking about this verse, what came to mind was, was Thomas in John chapter 20. You can turn there if you want. You don't need to. You can listen along. But in John chapter 20, Jesus has died. He is dead, dead. He's put in the grave. He raises from the dead and he appears to many disciples. They can see him, but he doesn't appear to Thomas. And so the disciples come back and they tell Thomas that they've seen the Lord and he's been raised from the dead. And we read this in John 20, verse 24. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Notice in this passage how it focuses on sight. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, the skeptic that could not see Jesus, received audible proof as Christ talked to him, tangible, touchable proof as he touched the Savior, invisible proof as Jesus walked amongst them. And so Thomas answers with an inexpressible awe and wonder and joy and says, my Lord and my God. You see, Thomas wanted hard proof because he knew that if it was true, if he knew that if Jesus was raised from the dead, it would change absolutely everything. And it was too much to stake on a myth, on a legend. He wanted to see for himself because he knew the joy that he would receive would be inexpressible and he didn't want to be disappointed. Jesus goes on and says this. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who are those who see and yet believe, do not see and yet believe? It's the saints of Asia Minor. It's us here today. Jesus says, you are blessed by not seeing and yet believing. And it goes on to say, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why? So that you who do not see may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. None of us has seen Jesus like the 12 apostles did. 
But to be honest, we don't need to. In a way, we have a greater opportunity to see Jesus than even the apostles did. We have for ourselves this gift of the scriptures in its entirety. We can look into the gospel and we can walk into places. We're invited into the places the disciples did not go. We can go into the manger where Jesus was born. We can go to the temple where he went as a young boy and started to teach. We can go into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. These are venues that the disciples were not allowed. The disciples were not privy to. But we get those. We look in the book of Acts as the church continues to expand. And we see the gospel breaking out, transforming lives, turning cowards into courageous men and women of faith who go and share the good news of Christ, even at the cost of their own life. In the epistles, we read of how the gospel applies to us and how we are to apply the gospel. And then in Revelations, we read of how the kingdom will come as Jesus returns and creates a new heavens and new earth. You see, we have a greater advantage than the disciples and that we have the full story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't get to see Jesus, but we are so blessed that we get to see Jesus in so many more ways than the disciples did. That through the Holy Spirit, through God's word, we get to see a fuller picture of the good news of Christ. First Peter continues in verse eight and it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. If you are here today and you believe in Jesus and you love Jesus and you trust in Jesus for your salvation, your joy is a joy that is given to you that is inexpressible and filled with glory because the one you rejoice in is inexpressibly glorious. Words fail to fully communicate the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we gather and we don't talk the whole time. We sing because words fail us. Words are too shallow. We have to proclaim and rejoice and declare the greatness of our Savior with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Verse 9, he says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the result of our faith, believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, loving Jesus, who we do not see, the result of that is that one day our faith will become sight. For although we do not now see Jesus, who is the object of our joy, one day we will see Jesus. Our eyes will behold the one we have trusted, loved, treasured, and rejoiced in. You know, when soldiers go off to war, I think one of the hardest parts of it has to be for the family that is left behind. You know, kids no longer have a mom or dad around. Their parents are alive, but they're away. They can't see them. They can't talk to them as much as they would want. And yet they still love them and they treasure them and they rejoice in them. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos where, where soldiers come home and they surprise their kids. Have you ever seen these? Has anyone seen them and not cried? Just curious. But, but, but the soldier comes home and like, 
Sometimes they're like in the middle of a volleyball game or in the middle of class or there's a big pep assembly at the high school and the soldier will walk in and the, the, the child will respond different ways. Sometimes they'll, they'll light up, they'll laugh, they'll scream and they have overflowing joy and celebration. Other times the kids just, they just melt and they cry. Tears of great joy. But regardless of, of whether they respond by laughing or crying, all of them, without exception, run into the embrace of their father and their mother. What a great picture of the salvation that we have yet to come. We cannot see Jesus. We know he lives. We can see his evidence in our life and the lives of other and the works of creation. We know that he lives. We love him. We rejoice in him. We delight in him. But one day, that glorious day, we will be in the warmth of his embrace. 1 Corinthians 2 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Romans 8 I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Why is this suffering not worth comparing to the glory that has come? Because we will be in the brace of the one that we most cherish, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So just to recap, we can have joy in the midst of suffering, knowing that God is proving and improving our faith. We can also have great inexpressible, glory-filled joy in the midst of our sightless love, knowing that Jesus is our treasure forever. Finally, we can have joy in salvation. This isn't just joy in the midst of salvation, but actually joy in salvation, found in our salvation. Our salvation is the fuel for our joy in the midst of suffering. Peter demonstrates this by emphasizing the wonders that others have had at the glory of our salvation. First, he starts with prophets. Verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the salvation that belongs to you if you trust in Jesus Christ, considering this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. That is, the prophets investigated this salvation, wondering what it would look like, wondering how it would unfold. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. The spirit of Jesus Christ, which is also the Holy Spirit, spoke to the prophets of the Old Testament. And he spoke to them at least four centuries prior to Christ coming on the scene. They were told that the Christ would be falsely accused. They were told that the Christ would be betrayed, that he would be spat upon, that he would be hated without cause, that he would be crucified with criminals. The prophets of old were told that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced, that he would be mocked and ridiculed, that his side would be pierced, that he would be forsaken by God himself. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And the prophets did this to show us the glory of our salvation. You see, they they had all of these prophecies. They knew what to look for when the Christ would come. But they were like puzzle pieces scattered across. And they sought and longed to see how the puzzle fit together. How the story of salvation would play out. And they longed to study it. To understand it. And to rejoice in it. Isaiah 53 is one of those prophecies that tells us about the coming Christ. It's written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And it goes like this. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, talking about the Savior that is to come. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was surely despised and and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. This is a strange way to think about a coming Savior. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Peter says, That the Holy Spirit not only told the prophets of the suffering Christ, but also told the prophets of the glory that would come after Christ suffered. Isaiah 53 continues. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life onto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, this prophecy was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Peter goes on to say that it was revealed to the prophets, these things that would happen to the Christ in order to serve us. And that the things that have now been announced to you through the Holy Spirit, through the good news preached from heaven, was sent to serve you and to serve me. And the question is, how was the prophets, prophecies and predictions serving you and serving me? Well, one way is that they authenticated the Savior. As I said, there were over 300 prophecies about the Christ that was to come. Many men came claiming to be the Christ, but there was only one who satisfied all the prophecies of the Old Testament. It authenticated who was the genuine Christ. But it also authenticated the gospel, the good news that would be preached to us. You see, for a Messiah to come and save a people by being rejected, by suffering, by being despised, by being punished by God, seems like a very strange way to save a people. And I can imagine without these prophecies, people looking to the cross and thinking to themselves, we lost. God lost. Jesus was not the Messiah. Jesus was not the Christ. Because to die upon the cross would be such a strange way To save a people. And for the Old Testament prophets, this was very confusing. 
How can the Savior suffer and die and yet at the same time save his people? Well, it becomes clear at the cross where Christ died for our sin. And it wasn't a cosmic mistake. It was planned out before the beginning of time to save you and to save me. And it becomes clear in the resurrection, the empty grave, as we see that Christ rose from the dead, giving us newness of life in him. The prophets longed to look into this great and glorious and mysterious salvation. But it didn't stop there. Not only did the prophets look into our salvation in the future, but today the angels continue to look into our salvation. At the end of verse 12, talking about the gospel, it says, these are things into which angels long to look. This phrase, long to look, is a very strong phrase in the Greek. The first word, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, could be translated to covet or to set their heart's desire, their affection upon this. And the second means to carefully inspect to be acquainted with, to bow your head forward in inspection, to look as an outsider. And so we look at this and we see the angels long to look into our salvation. And the question is why? Is it because angels are not that intelligent? Is it because the angels cannot quite understand that Jesus died for our sins? Is that why they long to look into it? Because they're trying to figure it out and they're just not that bright? Well, I hope not. Angels long to look into our salvation because they see things clearer than we do. Angels can see the holiness and the greatness and the glory of God in ways that our sinful hearts cannot see. And at the same time, they can see the wretchedness and brokenness and ugliness of our souls in ways that we can't see. And they look and they see this holy God loving and unworthy people. And it is a grace that is so glorious that their minds struggle to comprehend how God can be so gracious, how God can be so loving. And it shows the glory of God to the universe. Let me end with this. A few weeks ago, I mentioned how my family over the summer, we went to Noah's Ark. And on the way down, we gave the kids maps of the park. They're pretty cool maps. They're in color. You can see where all the rides are. It's, it's really neat. And so the kids are looking at these maps and they're thinking how cool it will be to go and ride on this ride and that ride. And they're planning out the trip. And so we get down there and we go in and the rides are better than looking at the map, Right. <laughs> The rights are far, far more fun than just thinking and dreaming about them. When we look at the prophets, when we look at the angels, they only get a map of our salvation. They're outside looking in, and yet they long to look into it. They rejoice in it. They study it. If they just get a map, and that's how they treat our salvation, how much more should we, who experience salvation, rejoice in our salvation? How much more should we study our salvation? Because we have experienced salvation. 
Angels and prophets never get past the glory and awe of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And neither should we. And so how can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? How can we rejoice in the midst of sightlessness? We can rejoice because we have this inexpressible, glory-filled joy in the greatness of our salvation by the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess Many times we do not rejoice because we are complacent about the glory of our salvation. A salvation that is glorious to the prophets, that is glorious to the angels, we have often become accustomed to and bored with. Forgive us, Lord. Renew unto us the joy of our salvation, that we might rejoice in any in every circumstance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.